May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So here we are in Lent, uh, an unusual Lent. It's still too loud, never mind. If I was to um, kind of describe what Lent is, uh, I think um, the topic of our Gospel reading today is, I think, a good thing for Lent. So um, I actually added the first four verses because uh, they weren't part of the lectionary. But the, the piece that we were supposed to have really doesn't make sense unless you have Jesus' question about who do you say that I am before you read about Jesus teaching them about who Jesus thinks that he is. And we often separate those two bits of stories as un, and kind of pretend that they're different, but they're not. They're the same story. And so Lent is Jesus asking us, who do you say that I am? And then in response, us hearing who Jesus says that we are, and then thinking about what prevents us hearing that and what prevents us living that out. So that's what Lent is. So last week, uh, to help us get into that, we had the story of Jesus in the wilderness, because, and we always have that on the first Sunday of Lent, and uh, because we're in the year of Mark, we, had to, uh, we heard it from Mark's version, and in Mark's version, like the others, but um, with a lot less details, at his, at his baptism, Jesus is given the identity of the beloved Son, and then immediately the Spirit casts Jesus out into the wilderness, where he uh, is tested, uh, the great tester tests this identity to the max. So what does Jesus think the, being the beloved Son mean? How does he live that out? And what would he trade that in for? We see that same wrestling with the identity, with this identity this week. Jesus says that to be the beloved son means to suffer many things. To be rejected, to be killed, and then after three days to rise from the dead. And Peter is going to have none of that. Because as the disciple to this rabbi, to this messiah, to this beloved son, if that's the path of the beloved son... That's his path. And, well, that doesn't sound very appealing. So he takes Jesus aside and he scolds him and he corrects him. And Jesus, in turn, teaches Jesus. This wasn't how Peter understood this Messiah thing happening. This was not what being the beloved son meant in his book. To which Jesus says, I lead, you follow Get behind me. Get back into the place where disciples should be. Get behind me, Tester. This is what it means to be the beloved son. So how does that sit with us? I think a lot of the time we are like Peter and shuffle all that stuff off to one side. I think the history of the church is we mostly don't want to hear that bit apart from something about getting us into heaven. But apart from that, we're not very interested in that. 
As I said last week, the origins of Lent uh, come from the early church, and it was a time when uh, candidates, the candidates to be baptised at Easter uh, were led through their own wilderness experience, not so much to learn about Christianity, but to be immersed in a new way of seeing themselves, immersed in a new identity as beloved children of God and all that that meant. And I kind of wondered what that would be like. And I guess from my experience, the closest I've ever got to that maybe was when I became vicar of this place. So uh, for the previous 20-something years, I'd been a youth worker and uh, a regional youth worker and a national youth worker and uh, had international responsibilities as well. Um, but youth worker had defined who I was. That was my identity and that defined my place in the church. And so as a national youth worker, even though I was on a number of very important bodies, I was kind of the voice from the edge. Um, I was that noisy youth worker guy. Uh, and, you know, the really important people, the ministry educators and the bishops and um, those kind of people were the important people. So I turn up to the, um, the Shrove Monday uh, pancake party and I was the ex-national youth worker. Uh, and at the end of the service, a few hours later, I was now vicar with a whole lot of new responsibilities, a whole lot of new people that I had to engage with and new ways of engaging with them. So as the national youth worker, there are people that you have to work with, but they don't live in the same town as you. And mostly it's by email and telephone and the occasional getting together for meetings two times a year and the occasional event that you're responsible for. Now I'm here every week. Uh, I'm with you all the time. So new ways of engaging with people. I have a new place in the life of the church. I'm no longer on the edge. I'm now a vicar, a full-time vicar in a parish, in a vicar-led parish, which are a shrinking number of those. So I'm kind of moving a lot more towards the centre of what happens in the life of the church. A long way, a long way towards the centre. And I've got to say that that was quite a wrench. It took me a while to get my head around that. I hid in my office for quite a few days. Luckily I had lots of boxes of books that I could unpack and take time to kind of get my head around this new identity as vicar. I didn't have a wilderness experience, although my days in the office were about as close to that as possible as I had really. And I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences of being one thing and then suddenly being something else and having to take the time to work out what that means, this new identity, this new way of seeing yourselves. So that's what it was like for those baptismal candidates. When they went into the water, their old self would die, their old ways of describing themselves in terms of their family, in terms of their trade, in terms of their place in the empire. All of that was supposed to die and be replaced with beloved child of God. With a whole new family and a whole new set of relationships and a whole new set of responsibilities and priorities. They were now with their new brothers and sisters in God's community to live bringing hope and healing to the world 
joining God's work of creating a world where all would thrive and flourish. As Mark says, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Let that blow your minds and change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. They were now part of God's kingdom. That had blown their minds and changed their hearts and lives and they were trusting that good news. So Lent for us is a time to spend asking what does it mean for us to be beloved children of God? How does that shape our identity? And what helps us know that? What helps us live that out? And what gets in the way of knowing that? And what gets in the way of living that out? So as I said last week, uh, for us Anglicans, one of the primary ways that we know that and are shaped to be, those, to be the beloved children of God is through what we are doing now, our liturgy, what happens on Sunday mornings. might be difficult to understand at times, but that is what is happening here. That is what is happening. So I, as I said last week, I want to spend some time through this event looking at how our liturgical tradition works and uh, in part so that we can be aware of how it works and its importance. It's not just something we do on Sundays. Uh, in part so that we can engage with it in a more intentional way and in part, um, sneakily, so I might encourage some of you to take on some more roles because actually we need people to pick up some of the roles to allow our liturgy to, to be as the best thing possible. So last week I talked a little bit about how what I'm going to say comes out of two things, mostly. One is uh, my master's thesis, which I wrote uh, about 12 years ago, exploring the place of the Anglican liturgical tradition and our work with young people, which meant I had to spend a lot of time defining what the Anglican liturgical tradition is. So that's the tradition that sits behind our prayer book. So we have the prayer book, but there's actually a tradition that lies behind that, that informs and shapes our prayer book. Uh, and the other um, source is the job descriptions that we have for the various roles within the life of our church. So our liturgical tradition is based on an understanding of corporate worship that is an encounter between the living God and God's church. So I'm going to say that again because it's very important and we need to keep hold of this. It is based on an understanding of corporate worship, so we are gathered together as the people of God, that is an encounter between the living God and God's church, which changes and shapes us as we participate as individuals and as a church. So we're not just here uh, to, to go through the motions, we are here to be changed and shaped, sanded into the image of God, sanded into beloved children of God. And that is a long-term project. God has a lot of patience with us. So the starting point in corporate worship is God, which kind of seems obvious, and yet I think a lot of the time we forget that. Certainly I have forgotten that a lot of the time. So I can remember uh, as a young priest, uh, and I know lots of people have done this, sitting down and thinking about 
what kind of cool worship we could organize that would help people get hold of this idea or experience this or and we sing songs that talk about welcoming God into this place but actually the starting point is God and God's invitation to us God's welcome to us into this place so rather than saying welcome God to this place God is saying to us welcome to this place and welcome to this worship so I wonder how many of us consciously acknowledge that as we begin, that this is God's activity and we are joining in. This is an encounter between the living God, which is initiated by the living God and God's church. So God is welcoming us and inviting us to take part in the worship that exists, well, that exists eternally, Who didn't turn their phone off? Ah, that's my phone. (laughs) So, (laughs) set up the live stream and forgot to put it on silent. Rats. Um, Never mind. Uh, So, when we worship, we are drawn into the worship that eternally exists within the Godhead, within the Trinity. This loving worship that is eternally there. That's the theology behind corporate worship. So we are being invited to something that is always happening within God. And because it is always happening within God, it is always happening in the fabric of creation. And in these moments, God invites us to stop to be invited into that worship and to take part in that worship. That's the starting point of what we are doing here. Every time we gather for worship. So, as I said, for a long time I thought our prayer book was a great resource and I would lead these um, workshops and I would even describe it as a great resource. And then I wrote uh, this thesis and I went, oh, uh, so, so maybe it's more than a great resource. Maybe I need to rethink my attitude to what we are doing on Sunday mornings. And it's more than the correct way it should be done. So I know their Anglican priests are like, this is, this is, and parishioners, you know, like, this is the book and we should do it this way and it's the correct way and we should never deviate from that. That's kind of missing the point as well. Our liturgy is a God-given gift that allows us to enter into this worship. I mean, I have some friends that say, our liturgy, it's all man-made. And I go, I really don't understand that given that most of it comes from Scripture, but... Okay, Uh, so what you do isn't man-made? I'm confused. So, but actually, within the Orthodox tradition, tradition, they would be deeply offended by that because they they would say that this is the gift of God that actually allows people to join in this worship. It's not man-made at all. This is the Spirit's work that has given us this liturgy and it opens the door to the worship that eternally exists within God and within creation. So it's not a resource, it's a gift, and it needs to be treated like that. So in our worship, we are invited into worship in God, but also with all who will worship and all who have worshipped, the cloud of witnesses. 
So it's not even just about us gathered here in the small church or the number that might join us on live stream. We actually join with all who will and have worshipped. God is especially inviting us to worship in common with all who will use the same text as us. So all who will use our little red book, we worship with them this day. With all who claim use of this tradition, so that's Anglican and Episcopal churches all around the world, and all those other churches who use our prayer book and other Anglican liturgies around the world, which is not confined to Anglicans, and all who have and will worship in common with the ancient liturgies on which the Anglican tradition is based. So yesterday we had the Yapabite Indian Orthodox Church gathering here, and I do wish they'd use more incense so this place would smell better. But uh, we worship in common with them because their liturgical tradition is the same as ours. I mean, the liturgies are different, but if we go back down the whakapapa long enough, they come from the same place. So we worship in common with them and all in the Catholic tradition and all in the Orthodox tradition and all in the Lutheran Lutheran tradition and all who have liturgies that come out of this tradition, these ancient, ancient liturgies. So worship isn't just about me and it's not just about us who are gathered here. God is offering us a time where our hearts might be set on fire with God's love for us, for God's world and all who share this world with us that we may truly love God with all our heart and soul and mind. God is offering us a time where we are formed to be the beloved people of God. So what does that look like? Well, in our liturgy, uh, there is a flow. So this is how our canons, our legal bits put out by General Synod, describe it. So a few years ago, our bishop here in the Bay of Plenty, who was a bit of a liturgical nut, George Connor, um, I was on a liturgical meeting with him and Monty Black and Ken Booth. So those three people are liturgical nuts. And uh, they would kind of go off on these long, winding, esoteric conversations about something. And um, I noticed that one of the bishops who came, Ross Bay, who was the Bishop of Auckland before that, the Dean of the Cathedral, whenever they started, he would pull out his laptop and start working. So I started taking my laptop to the meeting so I could also take out my laptop and work while they went off in their little tangents. And I mean, sometimes these diatribes have gone for over half an hour. The end of it was like, Ken, I agree with you, but you know what? You're preaching to the choir. No one here here is disagreeing with you, so let's just move on with the business, please. Um, But George was really concerned that there were a whole lot of priests who were not doing what they said they would do when they were ordained, which was only use authorised services. And they were using the prayer book as a resource, and they were doing some very creative and crazy stuff, which is a little dangerous, but uh, we won't get into that. Uh, And he wanted to have... provide a framework which they could be once again offering authorised services. So he and others within the Common Life Liturgical Commission came up with this flow. And we can see that flow in uh, in one of the liturgies right at the end. 
So this is where I just need to remember which one it is. So on page 490, we can see that flow here. Blessed be God who calls us together. Gather. Praise to God who makes us one people. Blessed be God who has forgiven our sin. Praise to God who gives hopes and freedom. That's all part of the gather. Blessed be God whose word is proclaimed. Story. We engage with scripture. Praise to God who has revealed his love. Blessed be God who alone has called us. Therefore we offer all that we are and all that we shall become. That's the Eucharist. Accept our God, our sacrifice of praise. Amen. Our thanks for all you have done. Our hands were empty and you filled them. So once our hands are filled, what should happen? We go. We are sent out in mission. So that's the basic framework of our liturgical tradition. Now they're not equal parts. The go bit is right at the end. When I stand at the door and say, go now to love and serve the Lord, go in peace, and you all say, amen, we go in the name of Christ, that's the go. And then we leave. So it's an important part of the service. And sometimes I sit in Anglican liturgies where they kind of mumble through that. And I put up my hand and go, need to that better, please? Uh, I've said this before, and Graham Cameron was here, and then he went down to Wellington, and Justin Duckworth was doing something, the bishop, and he did it in a mumbly kind of way, and at the end of it, Graham said, John Hebbington says that this is a third of the service, and you need to do that much better. And I was like, I really wish you hadn't included my name in that. I don't want to be the one telling a bishop how to do his job. So gather. What is it we we are doing when we gather in this place? Well, we are being gathered by God into this worship space, gathered in God and gathered with others as God's community. That is what the first part of the service is all about. We are gathered by God, in God, with others as God's community. So again, the starting point is God and God's action And God is gathering us to be the people of God. That's what the first part of the service is all about. And so the first thing we do at 9.30 usually is uh, sing a hymn, which we hummed quietly today. And uh, I always try, and I think I actually failed last week as we sang it. It was full of eyes, and I went, ah, damn. Um, But actually that opening hymn should have wheeze in it. We, because we are being gathered into the people of God. We're not coming as a bunch of individuals. We are being gathered by God to be the people of God. That's a we action. And there's not so many hymns that have we in it. There's lots with iron, so it's sometimes a bit of a problem. But, uh, but that is what we try to do. And sometimes in the music meetings, Malcolm and Bonnie would get frustrated with me because they'd say, how about this? And I'd go, no, nah, it's got I in it. We're not doing it. We can use it later in the service. But the we for the first hymn is important because we are being gathered by God. So that's the first thing that happens. But we are also gathered by our liturgy and we are gathered by the Psalms and the scriptures and we are gathered by the actions. So our psalm this morning is uh, Psalm 22 and it's a piece of Psalm 22 that we don't pay a lot of attention to. So we all know the beginning of the Psalm 22. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we said this morning is the end of that psalm. So uh, that psalm, the end of it, kind of starts in the bleakest places. And then it moves through to this place with this amazing growing swell of praise that starts with individuals and then groups and then includes those who have died and all creation giving praise to God. And as we give praise to God, and as we join with that growing swell of praise for God, we align ourselves with God. We align ourselves with God's vision for the world. We align ourselves with God's promises and covenants. We align ourselves with God's steadfastness, with God's love. These aren't just words we say because they are in the liturgy or the readings. These words invite us to see the world differently and to align ourselves to a different set of priorities and values. They shape and mould us. These words change us. Sometimes we can resist that and sometimes we can actively take part in that changing. So as we said that psalm, we were given an opportunity, for example, to be gathered into all that God hopes for and seeks for for all people. When we speak these words, we are saying yes to faithfulness and love. We're also gathered with each other to become God's beloved community. And the liturgy offers some different ways of seeing and speaking about, of doing that and speaking to each other and speaking about each other. So this morning we started with grace and peace to you from God, to which you said, How often do you say that in the streets when you see somebody? How often do you say, Grace and peace to you from God, or God fill us with truth and joy? Imagine if we did start our conversations with that. A whole different way of speaking to people. A whole different way of being. They aren't just words to say in church. They are words that should shape our life. Which is why I'm trying to get you to put down the book for 404. So that those words actually soak into you and come out of you, out of your being, rather than just being words on a page that they shape how you see the world and how you treat people. I actually use those phrases and emails that are difficult. So I start with grace and peace to you from God as both a reminder to me to be less grumpy. <laughs> and I also try to channel a friend of mine who died a few years ago, but he was the quintessential gentle Englishman who always wondered. And, and uh, even when he was a bit grumpy, he was always gentle and wondering and possibly if we could do this and I wonder about that and I go that's how I want to be like that guy but it starts with grace and peace to you from God let's start there so we also gather by turning around normally not this Sunday and greeting each other uh, which lots of people don't think should be part of the liturgy I'm a bit of an outrider about this, but I think that action actually is part of God's gathering us. I don't do it just, to, just so that we get to know each other. 
But, but God is gathering us in this place. That's what the invitation is. So how do we engage in that gathering? Well, let's turn around and actually acknowledge each other and know that we are the people of God, these people around us, and be the people together. We also do that by acknowledging all that separates us from each other. The confession. Not just a piece of the thing so we can say sorry for the bad things, but it's actually... This is what prevents us being the people of God. This is what, these are the barriers that we have put between us and others in this congregation and others in our lives. And in naming those things, we can know God's forgiveness for those things and move on. We can start to live again our identity as beloved children of God. And this all starts at the door. So those who've been on the door, I don't know if you've ever thought how important that role is and what a gift that role is. Because as people arrive, you are the agent by which God is using to invite people into the space and into the worship that will come to this place. So you're not just handing out books and you're not just handing out the pew sheets. You are actually enabling people to fully participate in what's going here, going on here. And one of those ways is by saying, welcome. Not overly welcome me. One of the parishes I, we went to, one of the guys who was on the door liked to hug everyone that came through the door. Now, we had to kind of say, you know what, let's not hug everyone that comes through the door because there's a whole lot of women that don't like that. They find it a bit creepy. He was deeply offended, but never mind. You know, there are just how to welcome, being friendly, being inviting, making sure they have the prayer book. If they look like they're a visitor, making sure they know how the prayer book works, where we're starting, all of those kind of things. That's all of that. But that's actually all of our roles when we're sitting in church. If we can see somebody who's struggling, help them. So they can fully participate in what God is offering here, ensuring all they have to need, all they, all they need to have, all they need. So, um, so normally I'd now get you to turn around and talk to each other, but I won't today, because then you'd have to get too close together and all those things, so we won't. Uh, but um, I have the job descriptions for the door ministry uh, on the font, what better place for it. Uh, so if you're interested uh, or have been on door ministry and haven't seen the job description for a while, I invite you to take that job description. And if you think, yeah, I'd like to invite people in and help them feel comfortable and at home, um, put your name down on the roster and take the, and, uh, take the job description with you. So let's just sit for a moment and know what God is doing in this place, how God is inviting us into this space, into this worship and how we are gathered by God, in God, with all those who are here as God's community.